0: Hi everyone. Uh, today is January fourteenth, two thousand and sixteen. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is. Hillel Adesnik. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology and the Helen Wills Institute at UC Berkeley. He's also Robertson investigator at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. Hi, Hillel. Hi, thank you. So his um, lab looks at cortical computation at a number of scales from neurons to circuits to network oscillations with the goal of working out some of the fundamentals of sensory perception in the neocortex. Um, Around the room, we've got Really big group. It seems like I've just been away for a while. Maybe uh, we've got Matt not hello, and we've got Alfonso Apicella, hi, and we've got Todd Troyer, hello, and Charlie Wilson,
1: hi, and hey, Selma, welcome, welcome back. back.
0: Yeah, all, it's the, great all the all the are like, oh, she's best, and yes, and I'm your host, Selma Qureshi, and I'm really glad to be back. Uh, so, so I wanted, to, so we have lots to talk about with you but I've, of course i want to start off big as usual and kind of get at some of your perspective on things cuz you're kind of newish and uh, and you do a lot and it covers a broad scale so so to me it seems like your work does two things almost simultaneously and that's to incorporate new tools And highlight cell types and behavioral state and incorporate all that stuff in a way that makes us appreciate appreciate like the explosive complexity of um, cortical microcircuits. But at the same time, it somehow manages to temper that with a search for some basic fundamentals and generalizable principles, right? Um, So can you talk about how you walk that line Mm -hmm. uh, personally? uh, And, you know, how do you kind of get... At, you know sort of find the space between reductionism and realism yeah. like just you know how your approach yeah
2: well first of all you said that really well i want to use it for my website that's
0: um, not the first time somebody said that to me oh, gosh <laughs> i make a career out of it yeah,
2: absolutely um okay you sure big big question you know my training and my background is definitely very reductionist i come from originally from studying purely synapses um when i did my phd on synaptic Basic synaptic plasticity. Um, and then I moved up a slight step, we'd say upwards in that hierarchy towards small circuits. And, you know, both meant the field of many of neuroscience in general, but also personally was, well, can we actually get at the sort of larger level questions of computation and perhaps even behavior, but still from the point of view, uh, the most reductionist point of view of understanding how these, the synapses between a small group of cells and a small region of the brain actually perform some meaningful operation that we can get full control over um, and that, of course, I think this vertical integration or so, or as you might call it, is, you know, a, a great way that neuroscience is evolving. And it's certainly the reason that it's possible now, and it definitely was not possible 10 years ago, is the advent of a lot of technologies. Um, my lab is, is not, a, it's not primarily driven by generating technology, so definitely that's one of our foci. Um, because uh, even though the, the toolbox of the neuroscientists, as you all know, has expanded rapidly even in the last 5 to 10 years, There's still technologies that are not yet existing that limit us, and we can get into that a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, I think it's very exciting to use new technology, and what satisfies me ultimately is not simply looking at one level, because I don't want to just understand how a synapse works, I want to understand how a number of synapses together work to actually perform something that we call a computation, which is the elementary operation of, say, a circuit. in the So...
0: Just specifically now, just with your most recent work, which I think we should probably touch on since it's kind of cool. You're, you're kind of redefining and refining the idea of the cortical microcircuit um, from the perspective of both anatomical connections and, and functionally in terms of layer and cell specific feature tuning, which is like super cool. I think that's amazing. Um, I'll can you, can you tell our audience briefly about your recent discovery of direct translaminar inhibition directly between input and output layers of the of the uh, cortical microcircuit, and why that's been so important, and why mm-hmm. you know what you think is sort of most critical about. It. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So that was our my first publication from the lab, and um, you know the goal, and I proposed this even when I was on the job market, is to re examine what we call in, now in quotes the canonical circuit. It's what many physiologists and anatomists have been building towards but we all know that you know the dirty underside is that's really not it's an oversimplified view but and, and there's been data to indicate that it's not quite right but we wanted to take you know our best possible approach given current technology in this case it was really relying on optogenetics to get at that question as experimentally as possible and ask most specifically is this how the cortex or the cortical circuit actually operates or are there alternative modes and you know most people would definitely think that's not the only way but is would it even be the primary way? You know, it's the, the densest circuit in the cortex is from layer four to layer two, three to layer five, but that's purely excitatory connections, and it doesn't take into account this richness of diversity of inhibition, which actually is a lot less explored. I mean, Alfonso and many other people have really been focusing on this and my previous work, um, but while we've been collecting a lot of data, how do you put it all together? So that's why we, we did a combination of in vitro and vivo experiments, and we showed that Layer 4, which is believed to be, it anatomically is, the primary input stage of the cortex, in many cases is dispensable for activation of the output layer, layer 5. Not only is it dispensable, what we discovered is that actually there's an active circuit where layer 4 suppresses layer 5. Um, and that actually operates through what we call translaminar inhibition through a circuit that, you know, I wasn't completely surprised that it existed, but it had never been shown. And it's, it's that layer 4 directly activates a specific subtype of inhibitory cell, in layer 5, these these layers are very close to each other, but even so, no one had demonstrated the circuit, and that it generates a suppressive effect, which modulates how layer 5 neurons represent sensory stimuli. And that's important because layer 5 is the layer of the cortex that's projecting throughout the entire brain, to the striatum, to other cortical areas, to the superior colliculus. And so, when interneurons are modulating the activity of these projection cells, that's very important for how the cortex ultimately influences downstream areas, which, which drive behavior. So,
3: so, I want to pick up on something. So... Is it it most important that you found that layer 4 can suppress layer 5? You said, oh, well, there there were hints, you know, people weren't necessarily surprising. But you also said that it was a specific uh, uh, subpopulation of inhibitory neurons. So which gives you most leverage that there's a connection that's, like, emphasized that people know might be there, but you couldn't tease it apart? Or is that you start to separate another subdivision of cell inhibitory cell types.
2: Hmm. I think those are both important. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on your point of view. If you're somebody who's really interested in the different types of inhibitory microcircuits and wants to look for motifs that are repeated across the cortex that would not just be in barrel cortex where we studied it, but elsewhere, then discovering a new circuit for it is very important um, and understanding what that cell type. Now, we haven't finished. I think you asked the question in the talk, but we haven't really fully sorted out that subtype yet. And I think that's going require much more data, both morphological and, and, say, transcriptional. Um, From the point of view of those who just want to understand general flow in the cortex, and the more important point is that it's not as things would seem, and that there are these complicated inhibitory circuits superimposed on this core anatomical feedforward excitatory network that really can even flip the sign of pathways. So I think those are both uh, key points of the story.
0: It it also seems kind of important uh, to me that we're talking about another level of complexity in the excitation and not just, I mean, everyone gets inhibition is mm. complex and there are all mm. these cell types involved I mean, that to me seemed kind of different and kind of a new, it's not strictly feed forward.
2: No, absolutely. Um, you know, the, I referred to a paper in the talk from Carl Peterson where they does extensive recording for many, many cells at the same time. I mean, many people have done this before, so I don't want to say that was purely novel, but it was the most exhaustive. And if you actually look into their data set, Almost every connection in some way or other has some probability of occurring in the cortex. Definitely different levels. The, I highlighted the fact that, indeed, the core circuit that we all believe to call canonical is there, but he actually showed the layer 4 to layer 5 excitatory-excitatory connection also exists. I remember on the review of that paper, somebody asked one of the reviewers asked, so what is the importance of the layer 4 to layer 5 excitatory connection? And the only thing I could say is, of course, we couldn't answer that question because we don't have, an, let's say, an optogenetic tool that can separate, for instance, a layer 4 to layer 5 excitatory connection from also the layer 4 to layer 2-3. So you have this problem, for instance, in cortex in particular, where it's highly recurrently connected, that without an even better tool that we don't have, which would specifically take out a synapse between two cell types, we actually can't ask or answer, perhaps, even more pointed questions, which is, what is the role of that specific synaptic connection? We can only right now ask... What is the role of this cell type? And I think there's that. That's a huge explosion of information compared to where we were before with microelectrodes. Uh, but if we can get to another level and actually ask, what is that particular connection from layer four to layer five excitatory, or separate that from layer four to layer five inhibitory, we can really parse what these different circuits are doing for computation. But that's at this point a dream. But I think it'll happen. Do you think you could comment on you? You highlighted some interesting data there where you found that the the neurons that were having this inhibitory profile going from um, layer 4 to layer 5, if you found a neuron that was inhibited in layer 5, you typically could find more paired recordings of that. And so do you think you could comment on sort of like, you know, the, sort of intermingling and then the fact that there's, two, there, there's you know, the, the populations, the two different inhibitory um, populations yeah. you found are intermingled, but, you know, there's obviously some sort of some sort of connectivity here between that. I was just a specific could, connectivity. Yeah. yeah um, so, you know, I have to give a lot of kudos to the graduate student who did those experiments because they were very hard. And actually, statistically, it's very even hard to conclude with absolute certainty that what we saw mm-hmm. was true. And that's why I only alluded to it. But we think it's there. I think we are now developing approaches in our lab where we don't have to do paired recordings, we can stimulate one neuron at a time optogenetically using two photon, and actually instead of look at pairs, like maybe three or four pairs in a slice, we can actually look at hundreds in a slice and get the sufficient statistics to answer your question. Okay, that's a boring answer to your question. What's a more interesting answer? No, I think there's a lot of specificity that we haven't observed because it's too hard with the only conventional approach to do it right now is paired intracellular, or even to the extreme where people are doing six cells at a time, or even one example of 12 cells at a time. But That ultimately, as we all know, patch electrodes are going to go out the door. Sorry to all of us because, I mean, they're very viable and I believe them. But in the end, uh, they can't be, at least for high throughput purposes, they they just can't be scaled up. So once we can come up technologies to scale up the analysis of circuitry with a single cell resolution, then I think we're going to see all sorts of um, circuit motifs that were not observable otherwise. And that, for instance, like this one, we should really, we're looking at the shadow. Of that motif, we'll actually be able to access that motif directly and then ultimately manipulate it more directly. So what's that technology? What technology are you imagining? So we are, are spending half our lab working, investing most of the money on, is a technology that uh, many groups are working on, or say a few groups, in which you express an opsin, a opsin, <clears throat> or you typically use redshifted opsin, in a population of neurons. It could be every neuron. It could be every excitatory neuron or so forth. And then you focus light Using a device called a spatial light modulator, um, which is a little bit like a PowerPoint projector, but it works slightly differently, um, just more efficient, and you can shine light literally on one cell in a brain slice or in vivo, and just activate or say silence that one cell at a time. Or the real power of it is you can actually silence not just or activate not just one cell, but ten or twenty or even maybe a hundred cells. Um, but still with single-cell resolution. So instead of, you can not only analyze connectivity on a cell-by-cell basis, you can begin to look at ensembles, but with single-cell resolution, both in vitro and in vivo. And that all depends on the fact that multi-photon activation is much higher spatial resolution than single-photon activation, and it depends on structuring the illumination with these more recent advances in devices that, that can pattern light in three dimensions. But you mentioned something about that, and that's interesting where you were highlighting in your talk about the complexity, the additional complexity you can get by selectively just activating dendrites. Right. And so how selective can you get, you know, could you get to a specific dendrite to that level? Yeah. So um, yes and no. I mean, yes, you you definitely can select different dendrites. Um, The resolution of these optical systems that I'm referring to um, can be scaled up and down depending on what you want to do, single cells or single dendrites. Um, the higher resolution you are, the smaller your field of view, and so forth, but yeah, you could even activate single spine. Um, but yes, you could definitely activate single dendrites, provided I should say that you know, if every neuron in the brain expressed your Opsin, it's such a meshwork that you wouldn't have single cell resolution. So in that context, if you're looking at dendrites rather than cell bodies, you would have to have a mosaic pattern of expression. So maybe looking at a specific cell type, like an interneuron type or a subset of pyramidal cells that project to the and for instance. And then, yes, you could absolutely both image and even photostimulate one dendrite, absolutely, and get at maybe dendritic computation per se.
0: So you're also interested in in oscillations. And so, can we um, can you say something about the sort of larger kind of granularity map of how mm. you imagine the spatial resolution of cortical microcircuits and, mm. and their connect horizontal connections and how? How defined and modular these are relative to larger networks that might use mo- oscillations. Do you have like, is it useful even to create that sort of map, or is there any, are these just two distinct compartments that? You- no, 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 no. Absolutely. I think. I mean,
2: I don't want to say it's not. A, it might
0: be a somewhat of a false distinction, but at least conceptually, we can imagine <laughs> that.
2: So um, yeah, we talked a lot about gamma oscillations today, and <coughs> gamma oscillations are on one hand a local phenomena. They can be generated by a very small number of cells. We're working on that with the technology I alluded to. How many cells does it take to generate a gamma oscillation? Probably only like a few as long as you activate the intern But those gamma oscillations that are local can then be coherent across large regions of space. And that's the the project I talked about today, was how even you can generate local gamma oscillations through a few pyramidal cells and a few, in this case, somatostatin cells. They can be coordinated, uh, and this has been proposed for a long time, coordinated through these long-range connections. So in that case, you know, in the cortex, both everything is local and global at the same time. Uh, at least when we're talking about natural stimulation. You can always do artificial experiments with very small stimuli. But I think, yeah, the gamma oscillation is, and I should say that gamma oscillations are not one thing. They're multiple things. There's probably different mechanisms that might operate on different spatial scales. And the one I talked about today was one that can be generated on a small spatial scale, but is preferentially generated on a large scale and preferentially involves many, probably thousands or tens of thousands of neurons interacting in a dynamic way. And... um, you know, I put in the terms of how can you really put together pieces of a stimulus into a hole which is going to involve a large region of your sensory cortex. At least, you know, maybe that's one exciting way to look at it. But you know, a lot of gamma oscillation work has been looking at how very local populations can time their spikes relative to some afferent input and code information temporally. So it can work both ways at the same time. I don't think those are exclusive.
1: I'm wondering if the techniques that you're using can resolve some of the controversy about gamma oscillation. So there was a series of experiments that were sort of thought experiments that were proposed that were supposed to destroy the yeah. idea of binding. Right. And those, some of those experiments seem doable in mm-hmm. their preparation, and you could actually examine whether those thought experiments do destroy the Right, idea of yeah.
2: It. So certainly a very controversial area, and that's why I don't want to take a strong side at the moment because we don't have data that would support binding per se. Um it's a very attractive hypothesis. And and there have been some hard experiments, like real experiments that have at least correlationally negated the idea that it should be a binding. But it's it's clearly so I guess the biggest challenge maybe you're alluding to is can we use some of these optogenetic techniques to perturb gamma oscillations in such a way that you could actually interpret a perceptual experiment, a psychophysical experiment. That's what I meant. So we have definitely struggled with that. And so what's the I mean, I don't have a good answer because uh, a previous paper where I worked when I was a postdoc is a very similar manipulation, in this case, suppressing a subtype of interneuron, which can get rid of a gamma oscillation, doesn't just affect gamma oscillations. The whole network fires more. They fire out of phase, but they fire more action potentials. So the tuning of the neurons changes with respect to sensory stimuli. Now, those can even be interrelated between that, whether a gamma oscillation plays a role in tuning. Or like this. But you would really need a manipulation that would only desynchronize the population without affecting any other feature. And I actually discussed this with the students at length at lunch, a very good question they brought up. I th- and we thought about just taking the exact manipulation we did, which is a really simple optogenic manipulation, and asking, can we, for instance, put a mouse in a binding type psychophysical scenario, and can we reduce the ability to perceive things? I think we def- it would work. I think it would work. But I think it would still be hard to interpret. So we're still not there. We need a more sophisticated approach. We can desynchronize populations without perturbing them substantially in other ways. Well,
3: what about uh, – so suppose that you could use some of your optogenetic tools and you got down to what you act, actively generate them. So you're, instead of eliminating things, mm-hmm. right, so mm-hmm. it's kind of a lesion that's necessary or involved in. Yeah. So if you could control them, especially if you could synchronize them with something that's pretty uh, small, yeah. then you could actually synchronize two areas ah. and control and make them synchronous okay. like they would be. And then make them asynchronous okay. without, without – the, the differences that you would have in total level of activity would be the same in those yeah, conditions, yeah, yeah. presumably. Right? And there's lots of presumptions there. Yeah, okay. uh, but you're controlling and actively doing the same thing, so you'd have to first demonstrate that you could actively synchronize mm-hmm. and get the behavior that you would get, the binding that you get, right. even though you're perturbing the activity, mm. and then actively desynchronize. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, that's very clever. I admittedly have not really thought about turning on its head that way. And you're right. I think if you could – you can generate or enhance gamma very locally in a very specific way, and if you can get a behavioral readout of that, then, yes, you have so much more control because you're generating it de novo. You could definitely, I think you could make an argument. So, I mean, I will i will allude to one paper that was published from Chris Moore's lab in which they did enhance gamma, um, and they were able to show an enhancement on a certain perceptual task. Uh, they did it by actually activating parvalbumin positive interneurons. I think it was published in the HNR Science a couple years ago. Still so not the same thing because they were not generating the gamma oscillations de novo; they were simply making it a little stronger. Well, the,
3: the key thing there is yeah. whether you can. It's independent of whether you generate the gamma versus or not. Is whether you can phase lock the right. gamma. Mm-hmm. So if you got gamma that was present and you yeah. could phase lock it, at least yeah. some, you yeah. can move the phase yeah. without doing too much because then you can move the phase differently in two areas or move in it the same false way. It makes binding. Yeah, Bind to stimulate that shouldn't should be not be better. Than, yeah, something like so. I see. So you're not, ge- you know, you're not generating, you're controlling it. Right? Creating you creating optical illusions yeah. that normally don't happen. Because mm-hmm. part of the uh, part of the problem that gets this with the binding hypothesis is always like, who does it? Like who decides? Mm-hmm. Like uh, who's the controller, and how do they control right. it to bind the two different things? And especially if it's not just presence, it has to be phase synchronization. So who? <sighs> Someone has—is this another oscillation that's you know generating both of those things, and then it's just kind of not that different because it's driving the two things together. Mm-hmm. So someone else is the homunculus is deciding, right? And so the generation and the control, right? Both—that's what you need: both the control of the synchrony and the generation of the oscillation. That's the foundation,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and they presumably both go together, and that's what makes it hard, right? Uh, but if you could just get a hold of one.
2: Yeah, that might be tractable. I think you're right, and I think if you could hypothesize what the consequence perception might be for, say, artificial binding, uh, or and have a number of hypotheses that could be tested, I think yeah, you could definitely. That's a very interesting idea. It might be equivalent to hallucinating or something. <laughs>
1: so does there have to be a binding master? I thought the idea. The, I thought the, what was supposed to be attractive about this idea is that no, it's sort exactly. of self-assemble. Yeah. The binding centered itself somehow. Yeah, but somehow, but so the
3: the some it depends on which kind of binding. That's where you get it. But if you do this, you know, red circle and blue triangle, right? And they're in different areas. Well, who knows that they go together? And the problem is, is if they're on the same spatial location, then you just have the same circuit somehow. You just use the spatial mapping. If you're if you map the different areas spatially to some even coarse degree, you're going to get it. But if you don't do that, and there are two different areas that is presumably the reason for the binding problem, how would you know? Because you can do a whatever the opposite of whatever I said, right? A green triangle and a blue circle. And how would but who knows the difference? Like somebody has to decide mm-hmm. to put them together. So either the either the features are not that segregated, mm-hmm. uh, or and then it's not that much of a binding problem. Or someone else has to, somewhere else. See
1: exactly. the things that we're used to thinking about are kind of toys. So, for example, this uh, target thing that where there's the mm-hmm. same frequencies everywhere versus just a little place, and then you invert or rotate the contrast in the middle of it or something like that, you're saying it's sort of a toy. Because it's got too much global organization, so it just forces a global organization that isn't a, a gestalt hmm. uh, phenomenon. Is that right?
3: Yeah, it's hard to
1: distinguish So some the of those special, special things. things. like well, assault salt experiments to me, right. right? We say we take this contrast grating and we make it small, we make it big, and now we see the big one has an overall effect. I mean, it's kind of, because it's kind of this simple version of it, but a slightly more complicated version is the one where you break it into two pieces yeah. and put a gray stripe in between. Basically, the whole stimulus is there except for this tiny little... Yeah thing, yet it's seen as two things, and you see that that, the propagation of gamma doesn't happen across in that situation.
3: But there's some weak evidence for propagation of activity, too. Like you can do these visual illusions where you can see activity in the visual cortex when there's nothing there because it's mm. it looks like a triangle. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so that yeah. would be a more powerful test. That kind of thing would be a more powerful. Yeah, test. and then you have. I think it's just really
3: hard to to because exactly it's, it's, pretty it's hard traversal. to turn that test into recordings in a in a laboratory because <laughs> they're not they're they're we think of, we're thinking of them as oscillations as a dissociable mechanism. Uh, mechanism from activity. You have activity patterns that mean one thing, and oscillations that, that bind things together without without interfering with each other at all. That's conceptually how you think about it. Yeah. If you do an experiment, when you get gamma, the levels change and stuff yeah. like that. The activity levels change. It presumably generate gamma by changing other things. So now, which is it? Like, It usually is not as dissociable in terms of well,
1: that's you know, where we started. I thought you started out by offering us a solution. to that. So now this is where you you take
3: ongoing stuff and you just change the phase yeah. and you presumably change the level of activity in in the same way. Uh says semi-control. I, I don't know that it, if that activity spread, if that activity change spreads, then you can do that. But hopefully, you could do it because it's pretty easy to synchronize ongoing oscillations without. Jamming things hard, right? Mm-hmm. So that's would be the strength of that hypothesis: is that you can do it without changing a ton.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, all speculation. I'm good at that.
2: Well, we're continuing to work on it. I mean, this, this first project that we're hopefully going to publish it doesn't answer the questions that you're bringing up, but and a striking conclusion I talked where you put that little bit of a gray stripe. That's not in the paper, but. That we're going to pursue, because that is something that I have no mechanistic, actually, from a circuit perspective, no cellular explanation for. I can explain the center surround. I can explain when you change the phase. I can explain that all, but I cannot explain how if you just take something and break it slightly apart. I mean, I think there are ideas. One thing is, if you need a propagation of this oscillation that actually doesn't just go from here to A to point B directly, but must sort of cycle through, and if there's a break, maybe it can't propagate, but... Even then, I'm not sure that jives would know about the circuit. So it's a bit of a, a magic. That and if it requires
1: continuous uh, propagation, yeah. Yeah. then that kind of negates the binding idea because
2: the idea is that
1: cells that have receptive fields that are mm-hmm. distant from each other would somehow... Yeah.
2: synchronize. So no, I, so I, I don't think it's a cyclical propagate or you know recurrent propagate. I think it is something that you have these long-range axons. So in the CAT, in, in the original papers, it was these, you have axons that could be many millimeters long, and the phase lag they actually observed is zero milliseconds. And that would really, which is kind of amazing anyway, but a very short phase lag, that requires it to be almost like a monosynaptic connection between these two ensembles. And that's why I don't think it can be like a polysynaptic propagation. But no, not if you've got multiple cycles. You can
3: have things long ways away that are, they're, they're oscillating. You have a whole bunch. of advantage
1: of oscillations, yeah, over over reflex arcs, is the conduction velocity doesn't matter as much because
3: they can. Yes, functionally you synchronize. You, you wouldn't have it because otherwise you'd have two different phase gradients that yeah. would be inconsistent in whatever yeah. direction you're going to go. So, but that takes some time to build up. Mm. So you'd have to do a, you know, if you have a stable oscillation, that's only true. If you have a, a transient oscillation, then the propagation, then you'd
1: have to see it So maybe, it seems to me that, the, that our thinking about circuits in the cortex have all been a sort of metaphor for spinal cord reflex arcs. And we've always thought about the canonical circuit the same way you think about the spinal cord. So the afferents come into layer 4, which is sort of like maybe layer 1 in the spinal cord, and then there's this propagation, and then they go out the output, which is sort of like the... Ventral mm-hmm. roots, and that, um, and that that reflex arc metaphor has failed us. Basically, we haven't been able to dissect the cortex as a series of reflex arcs because it's too recurrent. Mm-hmm. Maybe the spinal cord also, but mm-hmm. I, without offending anybody, <laughs> works on spinal cord. But uh, certainly, in the cortex, there's so much recurrence yeah. that that mm-hmm. whole notion of following a signal along mm-hmm. the little arrows that Hall or Lorente Dino used to draw along mm-hmm. axons kind of doesn't work anymore mm-hmm. because the arrows end up back onto each other and there's some delay and everything's based on analyzing synchronous volleys mm-hmm. which you then can follow the delays through but in real life there are no synchronous volleys. And so certain, the oscillations are an alternative to that mm-hmm.
2: and offer us an alternative for interpreting all of that kind of stuff. And so, well, rather than hedge, I would say that it, I would say it's a. The analogy isn't completely false. I think there are certain things and can be analogized as a reflex arc. So, I alluded today, but there was a paper that showed that thalamus can directly drive a layer five cell, and that wasn't really known. It knew there were connections, but layer five cell. And they found that layer five cells which project out of the cortex. For instance, there's an barrel system, the whisker system. There's a layer 5 cell that projects directly to the brainstem and then one synapse away from a motor neuron. So it's not in the spinal cord, but it's in the trigeminal system. And so there is a reflex arc in some sense in that you get if a whisker touches something. Something that a rat or a mouse will often do is if they touch something novel, they'll immediately retract and hit it again in the span of like 10 milliseconds. Very, very fast. Almost too fast to imagine a gamma. Cycle. I mean, that's faster than a gamma cycle. So there's some behaviors, and i call that a really a behavior, which actually does depend on the cortex. That's not been proven, but let's say it does for the moment. That actually goes from thalamus to layer five and then to the brainstem without actually requiring any other circuitry or any background oscillation. But then that's more of a detection. So the animal is detecting something and it's doing something. For instance, touching it again to get that more thing information. In 10 yeah, yeah, something like that. So
1: both potential latencies
2: for somatosensory stuff no, in the cortex
1: clear. is 20 milliseconds.
2: I mean, the barrel system is very fast. You can get a spike in 7 milliseconds in a, in a layer 5 neuron. Much faster than like the visual system is 25-30 like milliseconds latency in the mouse. But yeah, no, very fast. I mean, And then I mean, you get a spike in the trigeminal neuron in like under a millisecond. So it does propagate pretty fast. And the behavior can engage in just 10 or yeah, 15 milliseconds. But then that, it's not going to tell the animal what it's touching, clearly. However, then what it does, it touches it a bunch of times maybe to know where it is and maybe to know what it is. And then that is going to invoke all this activation of superficial circuits that might have reverberating activity between S1 and S2 and M1 to say, I touched something, now I need to know what it is. So there's a difference between detecting something and discriminating something. Discrimination, you know, I think, would probably take much longer and require circuitry that isn't just like a reflex.
3: Depends on the, so it depends on discrimination, right? So the, this is a classical thing of, People arguing feed-forward kinds of, of ways yeah. of thinking up versus feedback. So one way to get at, if it's feed-forward, is to get a feed-forward test that's too fast yeah, than to do that stuff. So they you do the at least. I told you it was all Well, you can say, at least it has to be that way. In this test, you can't use those no. other explanations. So things that people have done in primates about recognition of uh, classes of stimuli, mm. right? visual stimuli, recognition of animal versus mm. not. And you can get so fast that you can barely explain mm. it by multiple synapses, yeah. monosynaptic kinds. of think so, On this task, at least you get some categorization of something that's presumably too fast for a lot of these other mechanisms. But then people say, oh, we're specialized for that, and it's not that hard of a task, and that's usual, and then you need more feedback for harder tasks, and then that's the ongoing stuff. Yeah. This is the, the way the arguments go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just in line of the thing that you were saying, about this thalamic input that uh, reach layer 5 so fast, there is also a paper from Li Zhang in the auditory cortex showing that the thalamic input also recruits layer 5 fast-packing cells. Yeah. Do you think that these uh, fast-packing cells are different of the one they recruit from layer 4?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't, I can't answer that because we didn't actually test. Um, it is testable. But it would be interesting. So, in fact, those could synergize. If, the, if a single fast biking cell in layer 5 could integrate both thalamic and layer 4 input, that could play a role in when it's going to fire to a center stimulus. So it's a very interesting question, but I don't yet have an answer. There is a somatostatin cell, however, that is driven by thalamus and driven by layer 4, which we haven't yet published. But that cell is very different. It won't spike it'll spike. it'll take tens of milliseconds to fire because it needs facilitation to drive, as you know. And so you actually have at least one very simple way of looking at the parvalvin versus somatostatin as a high-pass versus a low-pass filter. So I think and to, the analogy for behavior was that you can have a high-pass event, which is like saliency detection, I just touched something, or maybe I want to know exactly when I touched it, um, but it doesn't actually tell you exactly what it is until you start integrating that with other signals, for instance, other cortical signals coming from even higher cortical areas. I mean, the rodent whisker system is, very, is optimized for speed in some sense, yeah. like auditory system.
0: Thanks for being with us today, Hillel yeah. Edesnik and uh, this is the Talk Shop. Thank <laughs> you.